0: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show sits in a different corner of life in Brooklyn, and shares the stories, sounds, and scenery of the borough we call home. And for the months that we've spent working from home, we've been telling New York's story from the intersection of disease and democracy, a corner we've been calling 1920. Today it's July 24th, and we're open for business. While the COVID count has climbed across the country, and the nationwide infection rate grown exponentially each week, New York has managed to control the situation well enough to enter its fourth phase of reopening. There's still no indoor dining or late-night subway rides, and you still can't try on clothes, but you can at least browse for books. The city's streets and construction sites are coming back to life. Shop owners and hairstylists are eking out a living. The Yankees beat the Nationals, and by the time this episode comes out, the Mets will likely be losing to the Braves. We're all still wearing face masks, or many of us are, and hanging out as far apart as we can stand. And hospitalizations and ICU stays are nearing pre-COVID numbers throughout the boroughs. There are fleeting moments where things feel almost normal, and although they're false and far between, the slight reprieve from overwhelming fear and grief is more than welcome. But we all know that New York will never be the same, and won't feel anything near normal until it's fully back in business, buying, selling, and never asleep. So this week, we're reopening and hearing from the community on how it's getting back to work. We talk to our fellow producers, restaurateurs, craftsmen, sex work advocates, and librarians about bringing the city back to life. And before it comes undone, wake me up inside of Brooklyn, USA.
1: When NYC went into lockdown back in March, the city's public access stations, like Brick's Free Speech TV, were forced to shut down as well. But that didn't keep the channel's producers from doing their thing. We caught up with one producer who told us how he's adapting to the COVID era and what he's missing.
2: So I am, I'm Anthony Jones. I host and produce Real Fans, Real Talk. On a Thursday night. Real fans, com, Arthur Domus, Trip Young, and Intern Time. We just discuss, like, whatever's the hottest topics, um, you know, this week in sports. Um, you know, and then sometimes we'll have different celebrities or athletes come on the show for interviews. Deontay Wilder, the heavyweight uh, champ, well, former heavyweight champ of the world. Um, but he actually he just lost the belt. But we drove to Alabama. To, uh to his gym to interview him, so that was actually probably my favorite episode and um Anthony Mason, I believe we had the the last television interview that he did before he passed away, he invited us to his home to actually shoot that interview. Was it hard for you to walk away from the game?
3: Nah. uh you know,
2: in the beginning of my career, I played for teams and coaches you know that that was all about winning. they was going to do whatever it took to win. there was no hidden agendas, no no menial stuff getting in the way, and then you know, down the stretch, I was on a team where, you know, other stuff was happening, and so by the time I I was done, I was done. So that one was like pretty pretty dope for us. You know, he was mad open, very honest with us. You know what I'm saying? So that was like a a, a, a really dope one, and he didn't hold back. So that was that was dope. At first, it kind of caught us off guard a little bit, um, just because I was like, damn, like you know what I'm saying, like. Like we ain't go, we ain't care. We was ready to go back to the studio and keep recording on Thursday night. Um, but I, and I think we wound up missing like two shows. But then after that, you know, so we haven't missed a show since, and everything's been new content. We had Smush so Parker on, played with the Lakers a couple of weeks ago. We had Shea Hopkins back a couple of weeks ago. We got a couple of cats that's getting ready to uh, to come up as as well. So we got Todd Gibson, um, who's getting ready to come. He's actually playing for the Knicks right now, so he's gonna come. We've been waiting, we're waiting for the studio to open back up so we could bring them to the studio. So right now we record through Zoom and we just, you know, we just lock in. So, but everybody, everybody's been home, you know what I'm saying? We just shoot straight off our computers or our phones or whatever. We just, you know, we've been rocking and rolling. We we haven't really had no fall off. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so much of a challenge, but just the, uh, you know, the ambiance, just the camaraderie, like, you know what I'm saying? Like we used to. Being around each other at least two days out of the week, we got like we got a whole bar on our set and everything. So it's just that ambiance of being there, and then we, you know, our crew is like a whole family type of thing. It's not like we're not friends; we all family. So just that, just being around everybody's energy and them loving to work on the show as much as we love doing the show. It's it's fun. It's fun to talk sports. Like I'm always talk so sports whether I'm on the air or not. You know what I'm saying? But just that ambiance of being in the studio doing it, you know what I'm saying? Us being together. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what I what I what I miss. That's probably the only thing. Other than that, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm I'm I mean, I've been producing since two thousand eight. Like I outside of brick movies, televisions, music videos, different things like that. So I'm always gonna be able to to work and get it done, but just after the people so what I'm what I what I miss. I was a little disappointed. Um, you know what I'm saying, that the awards had to get pushed back that, that I'm actually looking forward to. I mean, not even for myself so much, but more so for like my co hosts and whatnot because we have like seven awards right now from the for the show between like um the betas at Bronxnet and then the, um the B Free Awards. But for the people that came on to the show after, you know what I'm saying, that haven't been able to experience that, I want I want that for them.
4: Brooklyn Free Speech B Free Awards. So wait a minute, because I practiced this, right? So Bienvenidos one who was the other one? No, Yoko San, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And Bienvenue. Welcome. That's three languages. Holla.
2: So <laughs> no, that's just you know, that's the that's the awards, you know, the Ex producer awards. That's our that's our little academy awards, you know what I'm saying? Right right in, in my home in Brooklyn, right up the block actually from where I grew up, so you know what I'm saying I love it. Everybody get their award. Everybody get get dressed up, suited and, and booted. Hard bottoms. Ladies got their, their best dress on. Got their hair done up. Hit the red carpet. You know do little interviews before. And then you know we actually when we the first the award that we got at the B Free Awards, it was so crowded we weren't even in the um inside the the, the auditorium. We was outside drinking. I, I if if y'all if they saw the the, the video of it. I had my drink in my hand because I was outside the lobby sipping and they called our names. We running in with the drink still in our hand. I'm on stage with my drink in my hand. If if you're not out here working, there's definitely ways that you can still be putting out content. So, you know, talk to your peers. Talk to the staff over at Bricks. Emails, phone calls, whatever you got, but uh, but don't stop putting out that content, man, because people need to see it. People need that that inspiration. You stuck in the house, you you need something new on TV to just you know kind of take your mind off of everything that's been you know going on. Not just with COVID, but you know with the whole you know all of these you know police killings and, and whatnot you know, and things that need to be fixed in this country. So we need something to kind of take our minds away from that for a second. So keep producing. Don't, don't stop just because you got a little roadblock. Real
0: Back in April, we talked to a few local restaurant owners who were grappling with the sudden citywide shutdown, navigating state and federal small business aid, and scrambling to stay afloat and serve their communities. This week, we circled back to find out if New York's phased reopening has brought the relief they hoped for.
5: My name is Nate Smith, and I own two restaurants in New York City. One is Allswell, it's in um, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And the other one is Barbelinas and it's in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. You know, things are better than they were. You know, going back to April, we were just a few weeks in to this whole thing, and there was no telling what was going to happen and what was going to sort of materialize. Unfortunately, a lot of that uncertainty is still here. Everybody's struggling still, even with the outside seating. It just feels very like temporary. This is fine for this moment. I know that de Blasio had extended roadside seating to the end of October, you know, but it's like a funny thing because you basically are like having to dig into pockets that are pretty dry as it is and construct this thing that's temporary, but costing, you know, $2,500 or so. And that's like on the cheap. But I do feel like when fall hits, we're possibly going back to takeout and delivery and no seating at all. You know, that's sort of where my head's at, like, is that where we're headed? The outside seating has been good overall. You know, it's been helpful. It is nice to sit outside, (laughs) you know. I think that, like, everybody who's eating out is happy that they're not stuck in just, like, an air-conditioned restaurant. As far as, like, foot traffic and just, you know, your sort of baseline business, it's definitely been cut at probably about 50% at least you know, 50 to 50 to 70. One of our restaurants is doing about 25 to 30% of what it used to do. And the other ones, you know, we're lucky if it's doing 50% of what it used to do. We've cut back, we've cut back staff, like, you know, 80%, you know, 85%. You know, so it's, it's, it's It's a skeleton crew. Our operation is completely different than what we used to run. You know, it's, it's like a whole different business. We still aren't seeing a lot of customers out. And I understand, but I'm also just sort of like, would love to like hear somebody's thoughts about the difference between going into a socially distanced store and a socially distanced restaurant. And like, what's the difference? I don't know. Communication from the city to us as the restaurants, you know, it's just sort of like Cuomo coming up with this like thing where you're like, you have to serve food, if you're going to serve alcohol, you know, we're a restaurant, so we have a kitchen, but, you know, I feel for people who are basically scrambling to like put something on the table to offer people to eat when they don't even have a working kitchen. That's what you're hearing. this, like, okay, we'll sell chips and salsa and like, you know, popcorn and this kinds of things. And then, you know, now they're like saying that that's like, they have to buy substantial food, you know? So now they're just like, sort of like, I guess, Their whole thing is that they just don't want people wasted on the street. I have a friend in the city that has a restaurant in the city who was explaining to me that, like, her experience has been that, like, they have squads of people out there, like, standing across the street from the restaurant, waiting for, like, 11 o'clock to hit. And if there's anybody hanging out there, that they basically just give them a violation. So it's just, like, one of those things where, I
3: don't know, it's just, like, a rock and a hard place for these guys. The thing about,
2: the name
5: um, Allswell was, um, you know, we really wanted to create a space where people felt welcome, and it was felt like a place where you could just sort of come there and feel like it's like a neighborhood spot. So even though things aren't great, they are, you know, they could be worse. You know, I've always say that you know we're we're no stranger to struggle. I mean, this this industry has changed so many times since we've opened the restaurant. And, you know, I just feel like this is another kind of rolling with the punches and see where it goes, you know? So I try to stay optimistic. I also try to stay positive about where life takes you, you know, if things just aren't meant to be, then, you know, I guess we pick up and move on. So that's sort of what I tell myself, like keep that sort of, positive attitude about <laughs> it.
4: Back in March, Juan Mascaro, a 58-year-old man incarcerated at Sing Sing in Austin, New York, reportedly became the first prisoner to die from the coronavirus in a New York State prison. Since then, the situation at correctional facilities in New York has only gotten worse, with a recent report by the Legal Aid Society revealing that the infection rate in New York City jails, at 11%, is nearly five times the general population. The Foundry is a Brooklyn-based nonprofit aimed at providing skills and opportunity to formerly incarcerated people. In this episode, we learn about the organization, how it's adjusting to the pandemic, and a recent project that responds to the public health crisis in Rikers Island, the second-largest jail in the country.
6: I don't even like the term reentry. Reentry is static and puts all the uh, responsibility on the person walking through that door, coming back. I like reintegration better because that puts responsibility on everybody, in this case, society, to help reintegrate people coming home from incarceration. My name is Tommy Sathian, and I'm the co-founder and executive director of ReFoundry. ReFoundry is about four years old. Um, It was founded by myself and a longtime friend and colleague, Cisco Pinedo, who's based in Los Angeles. We serve people who have had experience in the criminal justice system, formerly incarcerated people, men and women. Um, our mission is to provide them with the opportunity and the tools and the skills to become successful, financially independent and leaders in their own communities. We train people to repurpose discarded materials into home furnishings and then mentor them into their own business or career track job. And we use discarded materials for several reasons. One it's plentiful and less expensive. Two, it's environmentally responsible. And three, in our participants' words, they often feel discarded by society. So when they're taking things that people have said have no value, they've thrown it away, Um, and they use their own hands, their own creativity, their own industry, their own purpose to convert that into something of value, and then they bring that out into the world, Right now, most reentry organizations, whether private or government, six to eight weeks of training, before you put pl- no, no real assessment, before you placed people in jobs. If you're not assessing people, and you're placing them in jobs in six to eight weeks, what kind of jobs are they gonna get? They're gonna get low wage, low skilled jobs that employers don't invest in. You know, at a Amazon, for example. Even if they stay in those jobs, they're probably not going to earn enough money to survive in contemporary society. And so what are you going to do? You, most people will return to what they know. And those things are what got them into prison in the first place. So we really need to provide people with opportunity.
7: In my experience with the criminal justice system, I mean, I guess it all began as a juvenile um maybe 16 17 and even throughout my 20s i was in and out of the court system and with that experience it kind of provided and molded me into the person i am today my name is walter escobar i'm 38 years old i was born and raised in jersey city new jersey i put myself back in school and you know i was coming out of college and I was working in Brooklyn, we're selling like multifunctional copiers. And I met one of my colleagues. He was uh, also in the same stage, you know, he was going through his situation. He just came home, you know, he, he knew my situation and he wanted to, to to help me out as well. So he introduced me to Refoundry Foundry one time because I came out to the Brooklyn Flea, And I was really intrigued by what they were doing. At first, it was more of just them helping me because I had, you know, the business plan together, and they also had the individuals, professionals who were in the field who, who helped me put, um, you know, who created sales channels for me, who um, mentored me through the process of getting me opportunities and actually putting my product in stores. Pen and Pistol was actually started by me and another participant. Um, his name is Ralphie Dominguez. Um, we actually are a small best lovely goods brand. So we're, we make like wallets, card holders, um, bracelets, women, clutch bags, purses. We also do customizations.
6: There's a wide range of background experience and success for those people. And one of the things we learned is we need to focus more on the life skills and to have someone with a uh, social work experience on site to be able to identify and intervene um, when necessary. We had one participant in in New York who was arguably our most successful participant during the program. He was making beautiful, beautiful tables um, and in high demand, but he had um some addiction issues that got in the way of his success and he's been struggling with that those are the kinds of things that we want to address Mm -hmm. in our full program and try and preempt uh, and provide people with the services that they need and meeting Mm -hmm. them each where they are but we do feel our goal is zero recidivism Mm -hmm. and 100 percent program completion
7: you know i was raised you know, with good parents. You know, they worked hard. You know, they never gave up. Especially on me who who put them through through hell. You know, I put my mom through hell, but she never turned her back on me. So trying to make positive decisions and and, and I know it's like to be, you know, rejected. If I could create some success for my own company, that means I can create success for, for others who are in similar situations.
6: We were accelerating at a good pace when the pandemic started to appear. Like all businesses and entities, we had to meet the realities of the marketplace and the world where we found ourselves. So we pivoted, and that's where we came up with this idea for Makers Make mass
7: The Makers Make mass project has been going on for about two months now, and w- you know, it, it's a great opportunity because I've been in this situation, I've, I've been behind bars, I've been locked up. So the severity of the crime doesn't matter because I'm here just, you know, just trying to do my time and it doesn't have to cost my life. So I need the PPE to protect myself. So I'm I'm thinking like, I, I know what that feels like. And I know what it might, you know, if I was in that situation, I would want help as well. Of course they provide the material, um, the machines, everything I need to make sure that I could put these masks together. And I actually sent the batch yesterday and two weeks ago we delivered about 800, 850 masks to, to Rikers Island.
6: The program right now has 20 homebound formerly incarcerated people who we've supplied with sewing machines, materials, technical support and online training to sew reusable, washable fabric masks that in New York, we're donating to Rikers Island for people incarcerated there and to the people who work there because those people go home to their families and communities and can spread the disease that way.
4: I have completed at this time already 80 masks I am so proud of myself. This is the first time I've ever used a sewing machine, and I'm very, very pleased and honored to be a part of this consistent assistance with those who are incarcerated to be able to be safe from the coronavirus by wearing these masks.
6: From our sewers, we hear that this has really been a special way for them to do that. They, they get to be active. They get to feel like they're frontline workers, and, the, and they are, and they're helping people who are coming after them, people who are currently incarcerated. And literally every mask that they make saves lives because health experts say the most important thing is to wear a mask. And if in fact, if everybody wear a mask from the beginning, they said it would cut infection rates by 80% we would be in the situation we're in now. So masks are critical.
3: Okay, right, here we go. So uh, the purpose of this session is to Find the stories that are worth telling the press that get at the heart of what you're doing with this project.
1: Earlier this week, I spoke with the one and only Howard Bloom, the publicist turned cosmic philosopher who is the subject of a documentary I directed, released this week in digital storefronts called The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom.
3: I've been working on a grand unified theory that incorporates every single discipline that I can possibly understand from uh, at least a dozen sciences to history and the arts uh, in one big picture, and I've been working on it since I was 12 years old. Howard dusted off his old publicist
1: chops to try and generate press for the film's digital release and offered to speak with me and do what he used to do for pop icons of the 80s. That is, give instructions on how to talk to the press about the authentic passions that fuel your work.
3: I got a phone call when I started working with Prince from uh, Warner Brothers Records out on the West Coast saying, uh, you're not going to be able to work with Prince. He can't do interviews. We set him up for two interviews. He uh, said absolutely nothing to the first interviewer, and then he tried to strangle the second interviewer. And that didn't turn out to be true. It was simply a matter of finding the key stories that explained who Prince was, um, who he was at the core of his heart and soul, and giving those stories back to Prince after digging them out of him and explaining to him that these are his greatest hits, and he's got to tell them to every interviewer with gusto as if he had never told them to anyone before in his life. Presses a megaphone, and the press is eager to know the stories of who you really are at heart. There's an interesting story to this film, and then there's an interesting story to Charlie Hoxie. So we spent
1: the better part of two hours discussing the film's genesis, key um, moments in production, the and the so, various circumstances which led to its creation.
8: I think the first shoot was right out for Thanksgiving. And right. we did a couple of different sessions of, of filming your daily routine and obviously the, the dogs, petting the dogs. That's something that, you know, we started early on capturing. And by the end of shooting, we had obviously quite a bit of, it, <laughs> a lot of dogs, a lot of dogs. At one point I thought maybe we might call the film. Howard bloom pets, dogs, <laughs>
1: We touched on some of the more exciting moments of the production, such as securing an interview with Joan Jett, one of his former clients, along with her longtime manager and producer, Kenny Laguna. And the only reason I was able to get that interview was the deep love that Joan and Kenny have for Howard, which was evident when I met them.
8: You know, back when you were a publicist and working with Joan, she remembered having very deep conversations with you about, you know, some of the things that you would go on to, to write about in your books. So she was able to kind of, you know, speak to the cosmic nature of your mission.
3: That's um, amazing. Yeah. That's absolutely, I mean, it's so gratifying, it's absolutely ridiculous. And my whole body's changing right now um, in response to that, that statement. When I was sick, First, John Mellencamp tried to help save me, and he gave me $5,000, which I desperately needed at the time because I was going through very, very, very rough emotional times. I was falling apart. So John helped keep me together, but then John came to the conclusion that I was a drug addict and they should send me to some place to dry me out, and I couldn't get down my own stairs, much less to some clinic in Wisconsin or something like that. So I think at that point, John gave up on me. But Kenny and Joan never gave up on me. And Kenny, at one point, knew this 350 to 400-pound psychic who was hired by the Chinese government or the Japanese government to track down murder cases and the Russians to track down murder cases and all kinds of bizarre stuff. So, But he came up here, and he arrived with a, a bag of crystals and a bag of shiny little chromium-like stones, and he tried his best to do his healing thing on me, and it didn't work, not a bit. It had no impact whatsoever, but it certainly showed how much. Kenny cared.
1: And then we talked quite a bit about the post-production and its various challenges largest of which was probably how to focus and structure the film. You know, what's the through line to a story about a man who has lived as many lives as Howard has and whose field of study is basically the entire universe? Anyways, you know, I, I reached some clarity
8: with the thesis and actually how to try and draw the, the viewer in at the top of the film. And I decided to, you know, focus on this this question, which I think drives you to try and answer and explain to people, which is, um, what does the universe of of mind-stumping creativity want from you and me? So that kind of became the, the focus for the film. Good. But I'd say the answer isn't, like, totally spelled out. I mean, I have my idea of what what your answer is that I think comes through in the film. But yeah, it's essentially about, you know, living your passion and living your own unique life. And the film is a portrait of somebody who celebrates that and, and lives that to the fullest.
3: Okay, hang on. Okay, so I think we've got the story here. I will do my homework. I will try to get this together. This is a very interesting tale and very interesting for me because what I think you've done, judging from two audiences, the audience in New York City and the audience in California at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, is you've created something that uplifts and inspires people, that gives them a new sense of their potential as human beings that gives them uh, a grander sense of the envelope of human possibility.
8: That's really amazing, Howard. You're giving me all the feels by by saying that. I I mean, if if the film can do that, I will feel very, very satisfied. To me, uh, the most incredible thing about you is just the... um, Inspiring and uplifting way that you live your life, full of passion and energy. So, if, if the film can can uh, help people see that, that will be, you know, a huge success.
3: Well, I'm giving you a hug. Yeah. Um, I've I've uh, I've missed seeing you. I've missed hugs. No hugs since March, and I'll get back to you with, with yeah, you, something. You're, you're a gift to me, Howard. Well, you're a gift to me. <laughs> so there. Mutual gifts. Okay. All right. Have a good night, Charlie. The grand
1: unified theory of Howard Bloom, produced by Brick TV, directed by me, Charlie Hoxley is now available for download from the iTunes Store, Vimeo On Demand, and other digital media storefronts.
9: Back in March, we called BDSM practitioner and sex worker rights advocate Yin Q to talk about how sex workers facing a total loss of income and with no access to federal relief were adapting to the new citywide lockdown. This week, we checked in with Red Canary Song co-director Kate Zen to learn how migrant massage parlor workers in Flushing, Queens have weathered the pandemic and how they're coping as the city starts to reopen.
10: My name is Kate Zen and I've been doing sex worker rights organizing for about 13-14 years now. I am a organizer with Red Canary Song and one of the co-founders. Red Canary Song came into existence in November of 2017. After the death of massage worker Song Yang in Flushing, she was killed during a police raid. Some of the other folks who are working on that street dreaming of a sex worker labor union and the chance for massage workers in New York and across the country formed in the aftermath to have more people power and to push back against both repressive policing and some of the ways in which massage parlor workers are portrayed, which lead to a very racist form of violence against um, these workers. The three different Chinatowns in New York, Brooklyn Sunset Park, uh, Manhattan's Chinatown, and uh, Queens Flushing, were hit pretty hard early on. Street vendors and small shops uh, were seeing that customers were afraid to come into Chinatown, and people within Chinatown also were beginning to quarantine. There are certain sectors of the sex industry where people seem to have adapted better than others. Dancers and you know, dominatrices and some sex workers were able to use like OnlyFans and other kind of internet platforms to subsidize their work. Massage parlor workers and a lot of immigrant workers are struggling more with this, partially because of their use of like internet platforms. Um, and also because like language is always already a barrier in this work. If you look at a community like Flushing, the majority of the customers of these Chinese massage parlor workers were like Latino construction workers. There was already a language barrier in that interaction in itself. Adding to that, like not having face-to-face contact makes it particularly hard. Chinese users of social media tend to use an app, WeChat, which other non-Chinese folks don't tend to use. And so there's internet segregation that tends to happen by language group and also by like culture you know finding digital alternatives to massage work hasn't really been happening on the other hand people are experimenting and trying to figure out other ways of making income you know doing house cleaning or figuring out wherever else they could often make a little bit of money off the table they had already been going through over a year of pretty heavy policing uh, after the Robert Kraft case in February of the previous year.
11: Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots? Yes,
3: sir.
10: And what is he being charged with?
3: Soliciting another to commit prostitution.
10: And how many
9: accounts may he face?
10: A very famous Patriots football owner was caught in a sting on an Asian massage parlor in Florida. There was increase in policing throughout the country and in New York, Flushing particularly storefronts that both provided legal massage and also maybe subsidizing that with, you know, a hand job or with other types of work closed down. So it's been a pretty devastating blow the last year or so to the entire industry, not just in New York but across the country. And I think COVID nineteen really kind of put the nail on the coffin, so to speak, for this industry. people are also still surviving and have contacts and have ways of reaching out to some of the people that have supported them in the past. sex workers have always cultivated various kinds of relationships and ways of surviving. So our group, we've engaged in mutual aid and support, connecting folks to grocery deliveries with the Queen's Mutual Aid Group, and also stipend money, some of which was fundraised by other sex workers, uh, like Swap Brooklyn. That's a group of sex workers who are generally not migrants and many of which have found ways to continue working digitally. So there's a lot of mutual aid happening within the sex worker community. We've also worked alongside other coalitions to fight for things like canceling of rent and expansion of funds for workers that are excluded from federal funds. Housing has always been the biggest fear and the biggest issue, it's always the biggest expense. And so for people who have not been making money for months, having the housing courts open up again and having evictions start again, this is something that's terrifying for a lot of folks. So sex worker rights sits in the intersection of so many important movements, from racial justice to criminal justice reform, to queer and transgender rights, to women's rights and, you know, class economic justice. Criminalization is a form of complete marginalization of individuals, uh, putting them at the hands of police. Under sort of sex work criminalization, one, workers are afraid to call the cops when an incident of violence happens. They're more afraid of being arrested by the cops than they feel they could actually get help from police officers. So that puts them in a very vulnerable place. And then two, cops themselves, because they know who are the, the street workers of a particular community, they often rearrest the same people over and over again. And often you have these cases of cops that take advantage of the situation Right now, sexual abuse is the second most common form of cop misconduct. And we see this frequently when it comes to the case of immigrant massage parlor workers and karaoke bar workers. In Flushing, there's been sort of scandals of police corruption and taking bribes from karaoke bars uh, and, and having these sort of deals with the bosses of these bars to be able to have cop discounts or to demand sexual services from workers, essentially rape. Because sex workers are criminalized, they're not entitled to rights as long as this work is not recognized as work but as as a criminal activity. And so as a result, the cop then becomes judge, jury, and prosecutor. So this puts an extraordinary amount of power in the hands of people that have a history of abusing that power. looking at incarceration, mass incarceration. We're not talking enough about how women are affected. The issue of gender as it intersects with race and criminalization, that's where so many sex workers sit. And police abolition opens up so many conversations that weren't possible before. Now that the greater system of advocacy and mainstream media is is taking a look at what safety without policing looks like, they are beginning to borrow models and even language from sex worker movements. For a very long time now, sex workers have often talked about mutual aid and they've talked about having to build safety outside the system through creating whisper networks, helping each other through bad date lists, protecting each other from clients that are known to steal or to be violent and having to basically act as if police have already been abolished and do not exist. This moment in kind of political consciousness is really interesting because suddenly you have people mainstreaming the word uh, mutual aid. Oftentimes in that mainstream form of that use, it kind of just means like donation. But I think we also want to like implore people to look at the more political ideas behind mutual aid, mutual aid coming out of anarchist, anarcho-feminist framework meaning like how do you provide services and support to people without relying on a state that can be potentially violent or racist you know sex workers have been practicing those forms of care for each other for for a very long time
12: Hello. Hi, hey. Mamie.
0: How was your vacation? <laughs>
12: it's great. I went to the beach.
0: <gasps> oh, my goodness. Which beach did you go to? Rockaway.
12: Ah, <laughs>
0: oh, Did you take the ferry?
12: Yes, I did. Oh, my goodness. Finally. Finally. All of your summer dreams are coming I was through. surprised. It was packed it's really packed. Wow. <laughs> the ferry or the
0: beach or both?
12: Well, I mean ferry was a yes and also like a beach. I've never seen like that way because every time when I went to you know uh, to the Rockaway it's like uh, it's a lot of people of course it's a during summertime but what's was okay it's much more space. Mm. That's I felt because compared to Coney Island. Coney Island is always packed right. but uh, Rockaway it's not much much less. No this time Oh my god, I was sitting almost very close to next, but we are trying to making, you know, social distancing. Six, yeah. <laughs> but was yeah, surprising a lot of people. And it uh, was perfect day. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>
0: was that Did you go
12: when which day did you go? Oh, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, it was very hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I went to like this random deserted beach called Tra Triton Beach, huh? have you heard about Triton Beach? Where is it? It's in Maryland. It's like in, yeah, it's in Maryland. I don't know where it is, it's in Maryland. But, it's, uh, but it has a really weird um, and dark history because it used to be a very bougie resort beach. Um, but then the owner, and it had like all these like dining, you know, like these, these um, amenities basically. Is it amenities or amenities? amenities. amenities. It. Okay, so so but then the owner of this beach in the 60s he um went bankrupt because he was trying to keep like brown and black people out of the beach and there was several lawsuits against him and he basically went bankrupt and he and then the whole beach fell into disarray but it's so like like it's such a pretty beach because it's like uh, like you know you have the beach and then there are like all these like trails of forests next to it and then if you go there you'll see like all these deserted like dining halls or like these Ooh. like rooms you know that have been like almost like ghost spooky yeah did you and go then, into them like no no i just like stayed in the beach and and then um i went in and then it was so funny so it was like raining that day and you know my sister-in-law was like we should just go and hang out by the beach and I was like okay so we didn't really expect to go in but then you know the sun came out and I was like oh I'm just gonna put you know a little bit of just wet my toes and I go and I wet my head and I was like you know a little bit further and then I and the next thing you know like me and my sister-in-law we just like Swam in the water with fully clothes. Oh my god. (laughs) Like in a moment of insanity, I was like, this is so nice, I'm gonna just like go for it.
3: (laughs) On July 13th,
9: the city's three library systems reopened 22 of their branches for limited grab-and-go service. And while library staff have returned to seven Brooklyn branches and patrons are filtering back into the space, librarians like Nick Higgins are planning for a future where libraries might look radically different.
11: Nick Higgins, I'm chief librarian at Brooklyn Public Library, I've been chief librarian now for about three years. But I've been with either Brooklyn Public Library or New York Public Library. It's going on 14 years or so. I think along with the rest of the city, we were waiting for the mayor to really take a stand and close the schools. I think that once schools closed, then a lot of the pressure was off other cultural institutions across the city to also do the right thing and shut down. We anticipated that we would likely close. So a couple of weeks prior, our children's librarians and our teen librarians got together and started to practice doing online book discussion groups and children's story times so on that monday on the 16th of march one of our school librarians shanitha she did our first facebook live children's story time
12: hello welcome to virtual story time with brooklyn public library I am Shinita, and I'm a
11: school outreach librarian. And from there, everyone was off. So we had a lot of librarians who were just sitting in their living rooms and in their, in their kitchens, like doing these story times from their homes with whatever technology that they had had or they grabbed from the library before we closed down.
4: Hello,
3: and. Action.
10: Thumbs up if you can hear me. We are going to get started. Today,
3: we're making snickerdoodles.
10: We're making boats out of recycled materials from around the house.
4: We're going to be using uh, beads and uh, pipe cleaners. I'm going to be knitting.
9: Let's reach our arms way up high to the ceiling
4: and down to the ground. Please feel free to join in. You ready to read?
11: And it was imperfect, there was no production value, it was largely just a staff-led effort. If someone in the early days asked me if they could just try out a new program, it was always just, yes, go ahead, try it, people just ran with that and really produced some great stuff. You walk into a library and it's like, this is Brooklyn, I mean this is exactly what Brooklyn looks like, everyone is here. That loss of having that shared community space is going to be deeply felt. What the library is going to look like in the future, uh, you know, the days of, you know, having kids and families, you know, packed in a, in a program room, you know, listening to a children's library and read a story or sing songs. I don't think that we're going to be going back to that anytime soon. We are definitely going to be a profession that is going to get better at doing online you know, programs and services again, moving more online, having appointment-based services, working outside with people, I think using and activating some of our spaces outside our library, some of the gardens, partnering with the parks department, hopefully, to do some things a little bit more in open air. You know, as as accessible as this makes it for some people, there are still folks who, I mean, for forever have been left out of access to digital services, whether it's based on just not having access to, um, you know, the hardware, but also just like a cable bill that can provide you with internet access. We've been looking at our our rooftops. We have like 59 libraries that are spread throughout Brooklyn, and in two sites, in the Brownsville branch and the Stone Avenue branch, we have Wi-Fi boosters on the top of our roofs, so we can actually broadcast our internet from our branch to, to residents in those locations. Our librarians have tried to create, you know, these opportunities for people to meet where they're at. We have right around 700 older adults who are homebound. So we have a group of librarians who are are just like calling them every week and just checking in and seeing what they need. You know, calling people on the phone. We've been writing more letters and doing reference work through just handwritten letters, primarily to people who are incarcerated in our state prison system. We're just going to have to be creative on how we can connect with our neighbors and friends and try to replicate that space as best as possible. The attendance at our programs now, you know, people are tuning in, it's a little higher than it was last year. And last year, we had over a million people for the first time in our history attend programs throughout the system. And on a monthly basis now, we're actually beating those numbers. We had a 244% increase in children's material being checked out on ebooks and audiobooks. There are 70% more checkouts for young adult titles or up to over 100 uh, virtual programs every week. What we've been able to create in a very short amount of time is, you know, people are responding to it. We've looked internally at the processes that we've had in place for a very long time, policies that might be discriminatory or biased, looking at our hiring practices, hosting these weekly forums on uh, race and equity issues and diversity um, for the entire staff here at Brooklyn. So we'd have every Friday, these forums where about 700 people would tune in. You know, People would have something to say about what systems are in place at Brooklyn Public Library that need, you know, we just need to interrogate them and you know, maybe de- deconstruct them, change them, and build something new. We're unique among the other library systems in the city where they'll contract out to security firms to come in and do the security. Our security officers and staff, they're, they're part of us. They're a part of our union. They're our colleagues. They're part of our workforce. The security offices that we do have, they are uniformed officers. So they'd have that presence. They look like, I mean, they're not police, but they, they have that, uh, they communicate that with their, um, their uniforms. We are talking about uniforms at Brooklyn Public Library to see if we can go into something less police-like. We're also talking about bolstering our social work program. So we do have a social worker and team on board here at the library to help de-escalate things and teach other library staff how to de-escalate things before people reach over to a phone and are compelled to call 911. Last thing we want to do is to have police in our libraries doing the work that we should be doing ourselves with our communities. So more social work support, more partner support from organizations in the community, maybe peer navigators from the community to come in and help mediate conversations between staff and the public and a lot more staff training on how to de-escalate situations. There's this myth that libraries are supposed to be neutral spaces, but that's simply not true. <laughs> in, in an institution that gives things away for free and. We're held together by this beautiful social contract that people are going to do right by others by bringing things back. That's not a neutral position at all, that's, that's not. The folks that come into our library are, by and large, enmeshed in all sorts of oppressive and, and harmful systems and the latent power of a public library, I think, is when people can come in and they can access the resources wholly for free to help them understand and think critically about those systems. And then you have a lot of people around you where you can work together and dismantle those systems altogether. That's not a neutral space. It never has been. On the 13th of July, opened up six branches and a part of Central Library, so seven sites total. I was very nervous, like the, the Sunday before the Monday we opened. You know, I was at a handful of spots that day and at King's King's Highway, so many people were coming in with like armloads of books and like it's like which became actually a little overwhelming at, at times. I'm happy that people held on to them for so long. And you know, this is a social contract thing, thought it right to come back and return those books, even after four months. It's just almost like, you know, getting back together with old friends and family members. And it just Feels really good, like the city is slowly waking up again and um, you know stretching a little bit. Keep reading, you know, keep supporting your local library and librarians, and um, yeah, keep reading and stay in touch.
2: Weekend weather is we Weekend weather is griffin. Hey everyone,
11: it's Junior Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high, 86. Low, 73. It will be rainy. Saturday, high, 87. Low, 76. It will be partly cloudy. Sunday, high, 95 low 79 it will be partly cloudy weekly fun fact did you know that the
10: largest
11: bone in our body is the femur and the smallest is the stifle thank you for listening brooklyn
0: brooklyn usa is produced by me sasha mathias
9: and me emily bogosian and me, Shirin
0: Barakhi.
1: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carole Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle.
0: And me, Waimi Sato. With help this week from Tyrone Gorin, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Taylor Cook, and Lauren Germain. If you want to share your story, check the show notes for a link on our handy guide on how to record and send us a voice memo. And if you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash
12: radio. We saw a bunch of jellyfishes. We got we made friends with a Moroccan guy. Um, yeah, that, that was my so question. magical. It was really fun. Yeah.